cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 7th, 2011. I don't even know where to begin today. Those of you following me on Facebook especially, you know I've spent quite a bit of time in my Facebook wall asking questions, having great dialogue too. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, we just like to take our time and just compare what's being said to God's Word and go, yes, no, maybe, uh, maybe not so much, Yeah, and uh it's it, it's all about uh, you really taking hold of your faith, diving into your Bible, becoming conversant with it uh, to a degree that when somebody go says something or, or you know that doesn't jive with Scripture, you go, yeah, no, no, that's not what the Bible says. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's really the, uh, the the gist of it. So today's program, uh, we're you know. <sighs> We'll start off a, a little bit light um, in, in this sense. Uh, got somebody who uh, sent me a link to uh, apparently y- y- y'all familiar with the you know Rick Warren's Daniel plan and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I you know I you know I've made it clear that I, I'm not a big fan of the Daniel plan and the Bible twisting and the weird things that go along with uh, the teaching that you know helped launch the Daniel plan. But uh, apparently, if you don't like the Daniel plan, there's other Christian. <clears throat> Hang on a second here. Yeah, there's a Christian. Yeah, I'm not sure how the word Christian actually modifies the word. But um, there, that there's Christian um, ways of losing weight, <laughs> including now sweating in the spirit. And so, you know, because, you know, everybody knows that I'm struggling with my own weight loss, I thought I would uh, share with you a segment today as I decided to sweat in the spirit. So, uh, yeah, here, listen. Welcome to our line dance workout. I'm going to show you the first sweating in spirit line dance. All right. I'll show it to you a couple of times, and then we're going to have the music, and we're just going to go for it. Are you ready? Yes. Take your right foot. You're going to lean forward. Okay. Lean back. Uh-huh. Lean forward. Now step Slow down. down four times. Arms <sighs> go up. 
and up. Oh, man. Now march it out and... Oh, my calves hurt. <sighs> Can you slow down that sweating? I, You know, I must not be spiritual enough for this sweating in the spirit thing. Throw the hands. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and grapevine to the right, grapevine left. Where's my water bottle? Here. Let's try that one more time. No. Lean forward and start on the right. You lean forward, uh, you lean back. Yeah. Lean forward, step, touch, praise arms, go up. One. Praise arms, go up. Uh, I'm a Lutheran. Can I skip that part? And two and three. Now march it out and wave. Two, three, uh-huh. four, five, six, yeah. seven, eight. Grapevine to the right, grapevine to the left, and hold. Grapevine to the right and left? Is that what that's called? I'm going to show it one more time. Now remember when you... Oh, man. Hey, let me check my calorie burn meter. Hang, yeah. Gotta keep going. Grapevine right, you're gonna turn, grapevine left, and it starts all over again. Five, six, seven, eight. Lean forward, Uh lean back. Yeah. Lean forward, step, touch, praise arms up. It's one. Okay, got my praise arms up. And three. Now march in place. And Uh one, one, two, two, three. three. Four, Here comes five, the grapevine. Six, seven, a grapevine. Now turn uh-huh. left grapevine. Yeah. Now hold it here, uh-huh. and you would start on the right. I think you got it. <sighs> <sighs> sweating bullets here. Let's do it. All right, we're going to start out sweating in spirit line dance. I'm going to face the same direction as you. I'm going to turn and face forward, and everything's going to start on the right. It's all good, all right? Yeah, this is a public service for all of you out there who are struggling with your weight loss. This is a public service that I'm doing for you. Uh, you know, here, you know, having the sweating in the spirit segment of our of my program today. Are you ready? We're going to party with a purpose. Lean forward. Here we go. Right foot. Lean forward. Lean back. Now step, touch. Praise arms. Come on. Get your praise up. arms up. There you go. Yeah, that's it. Now uh-huh. march in place for eight. Throw it up. One, two. Yeah, throw up is right. Huh. Whew. I don't think I can do this. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Grapevine to the right. Now turn. Grapevine to the left. Lean forward. Can I just do the white man overbite and? <sighs> I feel like I'm gonna bust a burst a blood vessel. Whew. Oh, my praise arms are burning. Throw it up. Grapevine right. Grapevine left. Pivot. Lean forward. Right foot. Let's go. Y'all having a good time? Yeah. Pick it up. Raise arms up. Raise arms up. Step touch. Now march in place. Throw it up. Uh, I, I can't do it anymore. <sighs> okay. All right. Okay. Let me collect myself here. I mean... So there, Rick Warren, that'll show you. Yeah, I, I, I'm really relevant now, man. I'm sweating in the spirits. So there. <laughs> yeah, I just had to share that with you because it's absurd. <laughs> you know, hey, you know, if it, it's a great way to look, uh, lose weight, I'm sure if somebody out there has burned a few calories doing this. Um, although I, again, I, you know, I'm having problems with the whole praise arms thing. So, all right, moving along, let's, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. We're going to spend a large amount of time, um, uh, in the next few minutes in, in the segment, uh, talking about 
the doctrine of separation, what it is, what it ain't. And we're going to talk about the controversy regarding what has come to be known as secondary uh, separation. The problem is, is that uh, the the um, there's confusion as to what primary second uh, what primary separation actually is, and as a result of it, there's a, really a lot of confusion regarding secondary separation, which I don't think you can really make a case uh, for biblically. Uh, as a result of it, there's just crazy stuff going on. And so what I thought we would do is spend a little bit of time talking about the problem, taking a look at a very well-written article written by uh, Mike Ratliff of the Possessing the Treasure uh, blog. And uh, Mike, he he, he uh, wrote a, a blog post at the end of February, February 26th, called The Doctrine of Unity and Separation that I think is worth passing along to you. And then, and then let's talk about uh, you know we'll we'll talk about you know kind of the stuff that's kind of all woven into this thing, and why the doctrine of secondary rep, uh, separation as it's being misapplied today uh, will ultimately end up every in in everybody being declared a heretic, and uh, you, that kind of you know you remember back in the day when the word dysfunctional first made the rounds. Now some of you younger listeners to Fighting for the Faith. Um, I hate to say this, but you may not have even been born uh, when the term dysfunctional first emerged onto the uh, common vernacular scene. And, um, and you know, supposedly it had some kind of pop psychology meaning attached to it. And what ended up happening is, is the way that it got, once it hit the popular culture and the way it got used, it, pretty much it became apparent that everybody was dysfunctional. Um, and so when everybody's dysfunctional, the term dysfunctional loses it any meaning whatsoever. I'm not even sure what the term means anymore or if it has any real meaning. But if, if everybody's dysfunctional, then you, maybe it's just a way of saying that we're all sinful by nature. But I don't think that's how the people who coined the phrase were, or who initially brought it into the popular culture intended for it to be used. Same issue. Uh, if If everybody becomes a heretic then the word heretic no longer has a meaning anymore, and uh, that's a problem. And so uh, you, you got to be careful how you throw things around. And so uh, with that, I don't have any intro music for this segment, but uh, if you uh, follow me at my blog, letterofmark.us, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E.us, uh, I have a um, blog post that asks a question, and the name of the question in the title is, who is responsible for the apostasy? That's the question that I pose today. And uh, this led to all kinds of great, really, really good discussion on my Facebook wall. So if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter and you see that I put up a blog post where I'm soliciting uh, your responses, uh, even if I don't you know, read your specific response on the air, Rest assured, if, you, if you've written something very lucid and, and well thought out, I'll take your idea and pass it along. And uh, today's conversation, there were so many different people involved in the conversation, and I asked so many different clarifying questions, and the discussion went so well, and it was handled so maturely, and it was wonderful. It wasn't a debate. It was just people chiming in and, and, and putting in their two cents and, and were to the point where we were really able to flesh out a lot of the different facets of you know this particular issue and some of its complexities, especially as it pertains to our current situation. 
So let me read to you my initial blog post that began the conversation and then share with you some thoughts. Some of these thoughts are my own and some of these thoughts actually have their origin, uh, well, at least in my mind today from some of the listener responses that I got on my Facebook wall. So Keep that in mind, and uh, and I, there were so many people who participated, there's no way I can properly thank everybody for their contributions. So just let me suffice it to say, those of you who participated in today's discussion on my Facebook wall, thank you. Great comments, good points, well-reasoned, excellent tone. Just, it was just fantastic. It was just absolutely one of the best conversations, discussions I've actually ever had on the internet. Usually things just go downhill quick. These things, everything stayed on topic, and it was just wonderful, just absolutely wonderful. Anyway, so the question is, who is responsible for the apostasy? Let me read my own blog post. I said, um... Uh, this is another reader response blog post for an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith, today's episode, by the way. I, I'll first share my observation, then ask the question. I should say, then I'll ask the questions I'd like you to answer at the end of this post. Here are my observations. It's clear to many people, myself included, that the wider evangelical f- church is falling deeper and deeper into apostasy. No, yeah, There's no doubt about that. As I survey that portion of the blogosphere that notices and cares enough to actually decry the current miserable state of affairs in the church, I also see a growing number of people who are discussing the apostasy as if it were a well-orchestrated and planned conspiracy. It's as if they believe that the apostasy was concocted as a strategic objective of the Council on Foreign Relations or the Communist Party, and that these organizations recruited an army of Christian leaders to play different positions on their team in order to deliberately move the church away from orthodoxy into apostasy. Now, based on this conspiracy model, we are to believe that some of the leadership recruited for the mission would play the role of open heretics. Yeah, while other team members, keep in mind they're on the same team as the open heretics, while other team members would be bridgers, those who feign orthodoxy while tirelessly working to help give credibility to the open heretics. Now, another team position are the ecumenicists. Uh, Their job is also to feign orthodoxy while working behind the scenes to obliterate all denominational-slash-religious distinctives. Now, by subscribing to this or similar conspiracy models uh, regarding the apostasy, some folks are spending a lot of time trying to figure out who is part of the conspiracy and what role they are playing and what evidence can be published in order to warn the church that their beloved favorite Christian leader isn't what he seems, but is in fact more than likely part of the conspiracy to bring about the apostasy. Now, all Christian leaders in this way of thinking are automatically suspected to be part of the conspiracy. And the internet is scoured in order to find any scraps or shreds of evidence that would alert the remnant about the real agenda of these leaders. Blog posts and discussion board conversations analyze the evidence, and informal lists are then created in people's minds. And the list looks something like this. Brian McLaren, status, conspirator. Position, open heretic. Rick Warren, status, Kingpin Conspirator. Position, Open Heretic Slash Bridger. John Piper, 
Status, most likely a conspirator. Position, bridger. Dan Kimball, status, conspirator. Position, bridger. Leonard Sweet, status, key conspirator. Position, open heretic. Mark Driscoll, status, conspirator. Position, bridger slash ecumenicist. Dr. Michael Horton, status, unconfirmed conspirator, most likely position bridger. Albert Muller, status, conspirator, position ecumenicist. Now, those who subscribe to the conspiracy models of the apostasy rarely, if ever, examine the actual content of what a Christian leader teaches, says, or writes. Why? Well, because a major feature of the apostasy conspiracy model is that the leaders who are participating or who are in on it would actually feign orthodoxy. So, of course, they would preach defend, uh, preach and defend historic orthodoxy because they wouldn't want to blow their covers. So, yeah, so go, yeah, basically analyzing what they believe, teach, and confess will be a fruitless endeavor because, of course, they're going to be teaching orthodoxy. Duh. That in fact, that in fact, if the the more rigorously they 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 teach orthodoxy, that actually may be a sign that they're really part of the conspiracy after all. So rather than examining the content of books, lectures, and or articles, the most important evidence, supposedly, is evidence that can link the suspected conspirator with other known conspirators, such as such as which conferences a leader has spoken at and who he has photographed, he's been photographed with, and which organizations he's been a part of in the past. The key questions to answer are these. Has the suspected conspirator ever spoken at a conference where an open heretic has also been one of the keynote speakers? If the answer is yes, then the suspected conspirator is more than likely in on the conspiracy. Has the suspected conspirator ever been photographed with an open heretic or other already known conspirators? If yes, was he smiling and looking friendly with the known conspirators? If both questions are answered in the affirmative, then the suspected conspirator is more than likely in on the conspiracy. What is the suspected conspirator's views regarding the Manhattan Declaration? Yeah, one misstep there, and poof, we know whose side you are on. Has the suspected conspirator ever endorsed or spoken favorably of Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, or Franklin Graham? Think about it. Has the suspected conspirator linked to other known conspirators on his blog or Twitter updates? Has the has the has a known conspirator written an endorsement of the suspected conspirator's latest book, etc., etc., etc. So that's my observation. So here's my questions: Who is actually responsible for the current apostasy that we find ourselves in? Is it a result of a carefully crafted Council on Foreign Relations conspiracy? Or is the apostasy the result of some other cause? Is it productive to suspect all of our Christian leaders and 
rather than examine the content of what they believe, teach, and confess, to instead scour the web for evidence that will really tell us the truth about their involvement in the apostasy. Yeah. So this led to um, just a fantastic and fascinating discussion on my Facebook wall. And let me point this out, okay? I do believe there is a conspiracy. And you're going, you do? Yeah, I do. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, 12, it's pretty clear that there's a conspiracy against the church. But it's demonic. It's satanic. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, the, uh, of basically taking the apostasy that we're currently experiencing in the church and then wedding it to, uh, say, for instance, Glenn Beck's current theories regarding the uh the uh the coming world new world order and one world government uh as a result of the efforts of the fabian socialists yeah i i don't really find that to be very productive because then what ends up happening is is that you end up having a bunch of people who uh whose christianity is suspected if they don't agree with the uh the, the fabian socialist take over the world uh, theory that glenn beck is putting out there and so, yeah, listen, you know, I, I'm not an expert on Fabian socialism. Just, I'm just not, okay? Could Glenn Beck be right about that? Sure. Okay, fine. He could potentially be right about it. But here's the deal, is that where we've got a problem is this, is when we create non-biblical categories in our discernment, such as the category of Bridger, okay? Uh, the way one person describes Bridgers. Um, Bridgers, apparently, uh, you can be a Bridger and not even know it. You can completely teach Orthodox Christianity and still be a, a, be in on the conspiracy. I, I just don't find that category to be very helpful. And on top of it, uh, we've the, how you come to this conclusion is, well, du- dubious at best. I think the better thing to do is to is to again go back to the scriptures, go back to what the Bible teaches regarding what is true separation and what is expected of Christians when it comes to separation. Ask the tough questions regarding this secondary, uh, the doctrine of secondary separation, to see if it really can be defended biblically, and and then kind of work out from there. But to basically work from uh you know to you know to see you know to try to marry the current apostasy that we're having to marry it to any one particular person's uh, th- theories regarding conspiracies the new world order uh the council on foreign relations uh the fabian socialists and their agenda and things like that i think is um well it, it it may turn out to be um well how do the how does the chicken little uh, thing the sky is falling it it may actually turn out to be that and so and and the in the process what ends up happening is is that a whole lot of really good bible teachers end up and you know it, it end up being thrown into the suspicious list 
uh, when when they've done nothing but boldly and clearly proclaim and defend the biblical gospel for all of their ministry. And, uh, and so that becomes the real problem. In other words, in order to be a heretic, you have to actually teach heresy. Plain and simple. You, 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 in order to be a heretic, you have to really actually teach it. You have to really actually deny the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And, uh, and you know, and, and just being under the same roof as somebody who is a heretic or being photographed with a heretic doesn't rise to the level of taking the person and turning them into a heretic. And so um, what I thought I would do is we're going to take a break real quick, and then I'm gonna, when we come back, I'm going to re- read Mike Ratliff's post entitled The Doctrine of Unity and Separation just to get something into the biblical mix here. And, uh, and, you know, and here's the deal. I'm open to uh, your questions. I'm open to your comments, to your feedback on this topic. You know, I understand that this is kind of a hot-button issue right now. Um, and m- my, my concern at this point is, is that um, uh, in the very real concern that many people have regarding the very real apostasy that we're actually really facing— is that if you take the conclusions too far or you get off the rails biblically as far as what the Bible prescribes, um, yeah, then, then you actually become part of the problem rather than the solution. And so we, we got we, we got to keep in mind, it's not like any of this stuff caught God off guard. And so uh, as a result of it, you know, God's Word does actually provide us some pretty good guidance as to what to do here. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. I'll read Mike Ratliff's uh, blog post. And, uh, and we'll see what, what kind of time we have left after that. Hour number two, we have a fantastic uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon on the Gospel of John chapter 10. And uh, when he emailed me, he said, it even includes the, pa- the verse in there regarding the abundant life. <laughs> Can't wait to hear it. All right, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on uh, this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker and I came to check it out. 
Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. Pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, I'm back. Warning, Glenn Beck actually might be wrong about the Fabian Socialists. Best not to make it a litmus test for Christian Orthodoxy. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Hey, are you listening to this podcast and radio program and never contributed? What are you thinking? (sighs) Get, get behind your keyboard and, and type in www.fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. Pick one. Fill it all out. We depend upon you. We're listener-supported. That's right. So if 
you've been listening for free for a while and you've been growing and learning from this program, get get behind the keyboard and get online and uh, and help support us financially so we can keep doing what we're doing. Uh, one of the buttons says uh, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're automatically signing up to contribute $6.95 every month automatically to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what we're going to do right now, I just want to spend a little bit of time. We got to... When controversy erupts, the first place we need to go to is to the Bible. It's a great idea. And um, I uh, really, truly appreciate the work of Mike Ratliff. I don't know if you're all familiar with his blog. The name of it is Possessing the Treasure. And got to tell you, this guy, he is a um, he's just a solid, solid, solid lay leader. I think he's taught himself Greek. And when you get there, you're going to see him using Greek phrases in his blog post and in his devotional blog post and uh just just is, this guy is as steady as she goes i mean this uh, i mean you know you know how some ships in the water you know they bob up and down because they don't have you know, they don't have a lot of mass and weight to them and so they're kind of tossed you know up onto this wave and then down on this thing and yeah not not mike ratliff i mean you know he plows through the waves you know pretty much unscathed and there and because there's substance to what he does because he spends a lot of time just carefully unpacking what the bible says quoting the greek i don't know if he can do, can do hebrew or not but anyway you know what i'm saying about mike and i and i want to and i just i want to read this because i think he's given us a fantastic contribution to this whole idea of what does the bible teach regarding this whole separation thing okay Quoting Titus chapter 1, verses nine, uh, 5 through 9 in the ESV, Ratliff writes, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It doesn't take very long for me to discern whether a person I am dealing with is truly God's man or woman or is a pretender. That person's, that the, that personal interaction is necessary for me to see the true nature and focus of the person. As we debate or discuss doctrinal or church issues or even secular issues, it soon soon becomes very clear to me whether I'm dealing with somebody who is walking according to the Lordship of Christ or is their own man or woman. Their values soon become apparent. All of us are in various stages of spiritual growth and repentance, to be sure, but the mark of the washing of regeneration is there to be seen in all of God's people that cannot be counterfeited. Of course, this is only discernible by those who are looking for it, and then only through God's testing fires. I think that is why those of us who truly belong to him are so often struggling in the fires of tribulation. As I have that personal interaction with people, as I shared above, I'm given glimpses into their value systems and what is truly beleaguering them, etc., when some come to me full of retribution, meaning to shut me up or whatever, I always prayerfully look at their motives. 
Never have I had anyone do that with the motive of bringing glory to God. No, it has always been self-motivated, personal glory. In light of this, I pray that you will carefully read this passage from Titus that I placed at the top of the post. According to those in the Rick Warren camp, unity is what the church must be about. This unity is all-encompassing, with no regard for doctrine, etc. However, as you just read in that passage, uh, the elder of the church is to do what? He must be ready to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also be ready to rebuke those who contradict it. Does this rebuke mean we separate from them as well? First, here is a definition of unity, part of the doctrine of unity and separation. So if you're going to understand what separation is, you kind of need to know what unity is first. So here's a, here's a I don't know where he got this from, but I, I'll assume it's some reformed document. So it's dubious. No, I'm kidding. It, it, it really seems solid. But anyway, here's a, what this doctrinal statement says regarding unity. The church is united in Christ having a common salvation which is found in Christ, a common citizenship which is in heaven, a common hope which is Christ, a common spirit which dwells within each believer, a common fate which is is likeness and conformity to Christ, a common interest to walk with Christ and to spread his name. And then he quotes, Matthew 28, 19 from the uh, Great Commission, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Chosen to know nothing among you except for Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Philippians 3 8, Romans 5, uh, 2 and 5, Colossians 1 5, Hebrews 6, uh, 18 through 19. You get the gist of it. It says, These things all believers share, regardless of race, ethic, or political background, class distinction, and or church affiliation. Mm-hmm. We are united together to the head, which is Christ. Right on. So if we're going to talk about separation, you got to first talk about unity. What is unity? And he just laid it out for us. You know what I should probably do here? Uh, Hang on a second here. Let me pull up my computerized Bible, and I might have it in my timeline. Yes, no. Yes, I do. I'm going to read to you the verses that he uh, he posted for our consideration, just in the order that he put them. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, uh, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Romans 5, 2 and 5. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand, in which we rejoice, in which we hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Colossians 1, 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. So that... 
by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Okay, going back to what uh, Herr Ratliff wrote, we continue. However, we, that's Christians, are also called to separate from the world and to separate from those who profess to be Christians but who are worldly or who refuse to submit to the doctrine of Christ. We are also to separate from professing Christians who refuse to submit to the lordship of Christ. Now consider the following two quotes from Charles Spurgeon. Quote, On all hands we hear cries for unity in this and unity in that, but in our mind the main need of this age is not compromise but conscientiousness. First pure, then peaceable. It is easy to cry, a confederacy, but that union is not based on the truth of God and is rather a conspiracy than a communion. Now, I want to point something out here. What is he talking about? A confederacy? He's talking about churches who wanted to link together in altar and pulpit fellowship, a confederacy of churches that that can say that the, that they're all united together, right? That's the context of what's going on here. Spurgeon continues, he says, Charity by all means, but honesty also. Love, of course, but love to God as well as love to men. Love of God as well as love of union. It is exceedingly difficult in these times to preserve one's fidelity before God and one's fraternity among men. Should not the former be preferred to the latter if both cannot be maintained? We think so. The following is an excerpt from the Bond of the Covenant, preached Sunday morning, May 10th, 1885, at the uh, Metro Tabernacle in London. Spurgeon's criticism of 19th century modernism are also perfectly suited for 21st century postmodernism, said Spurgeon in the sermon. This degradation has made a god of its own. The effeminate deity of the modern school is no more the true god than Dagon or Baal. I know him not, neither do I reverence him. But Jehovah is the true God. He is the God of love, but he is also robed in justice. He is the God of forgiveness, but he is also the God of atonement. He is the God of heaven. He is also the God who sends the wicked down to hell. We, of course, are thought to be harsh and narrow-minded and bigoted, nevertheless. (laughs) Nothing's changed, apparently, in, in more than 100 years. And this God is our God forever and ever. There has been no change in Jehovah. He has revealed himself more clearly in Christ Jesus, but he is the same God as the Old Testament, and as such we worship him. So biblical separation, or correctly obeying the doctrine of separation, is not to be taken lightly, and we must do it correctly. And here are the guidelines. Okay. Number one, be discerning. Biblical separation begins with spiritual and doctrinal discernment. I cannot separate from that which is false if I do not know truth from error. 
see how let's uh, let's uh, spend a little bit of time with the text that he provides. He begins by providing us with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 21. Let me pull that up. Hang on a second here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 There we go. Small verse. Test everything, hold fast to what is good. <laughs> Plain and simple. Okay, I agree. All right, yes. All right. He also says, see, uh, he gives the verses. Let me see if I can pull those up in order. Um, Is it Philippians 1.9? Yes. Okay, hang on a second here. There we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Philippians 1.9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Hebrews 5.12-14. For though... By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, number one... The first part of understanding biblical separation is the biblical call for discernment. Number two, maintain an earnest proclamation and defense of the truth or defense of the faith. And for this, he cites Jude chap, uh, chapter, Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to appeal to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude exhorts his readers to contend for the faith, not because he loved contention, but because it is necessary to preserve the faith from corruption. He indicates that he would rather write concerning the common salvation, but it had become necessary to take up the sword. Here is a picture of the well-balanced Christian. He loves to proclaim the gospel, but when necessary, he will take up the sword in defense of the gospel. Jude did not say, as some say today, who wish to avoid the reproach of liberal e- e- ecclesiasticism, that all, uh, that all one has to do is preach the gospel or the word of God is, is its own defense. The real Christian has to contend for the faith in these times. Jude would have, a, had, would have had scant sympathy for that type of ministerial self-righteousness, which often says, I preach the gospel and I let, the, and I let these issues and I leave these other issues alone. This convinces some people that he is not a wicked separatist, but it also convinces a compromising ecclesiasticism that they have nothing to fear from this ex-Gideonite who has a number of reasons for not serving in Gideon's army. The prophet contended for the faith within the structure of of religious Israel, often to their own death. John the Baptist contended for the faith, incurred the enmity of the religious leadership, and was beheaded for denouncing sin by name in high places. Jesus contended for the faith that the messianic hope and promise was fulfilled in himself and then was murdered. Stephen contended for the faith that Christianity was the fulfillment of the Old Testament faith, and he was stoned to death. The evangelical inclusivists of our day, though, seem to be alive and doing fairly well. Inclusivist refers to those who promote ecumenical union and disregard doctrinal 
and moral purity. Number three, mark those who err. Cited for this is Romans chapter 16, verse 17, which reads, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Not only are we to know the truth and to be discerning, not only are we to be aggressively contend for the truth, but we're also to identify false teachers and apostate Christian groups by name. In this way, we protect ourselves and others. This was Paul's custom. Consider the following examples. And uh, let me pull these up on my computerized Bible. He's, he's going to give us examples of how the Apostle Paul um, named people. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Holding fast and a good conscience, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Second Timothy chapter 2.16, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. In these passages, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy of several false teachers and disobedient men, and he identified these men by name. This was also the custom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he cites Luke chapter 20, verses 45 uh, through 47, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, and uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 6, 15, and 20. Yeah, you're going, Jesus spoke in Revelation? He sure did. There's red letters in the book of Revelation. You might want to look in those opening chapters. Anyway, let me continue. Following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his apostles, we must identify and label those who are false, apostate, or disobedient. To fail to do so is rebellion to the Bible's command. It is also the mark of an unfaithful, careless shepherd. A good shepherd protects the sheep from danger. Number four, avoid fellowship. And that is a word that needs to be defined. Fellowship. Okay, now... As a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, I am a confessional Lutheran. What that means is is that um, I only have fellowship with fellow Missouri Synod Lutherans or people who are Lutherans who confess the same doctrines that I confess. Now, that being said, I have I have no problem saying I've got a whole bunch of Christian brothers and sisters who are not Missouri Synod Lutherans. And because of our doctrinal differences, and I because I think that they're important enough to matter, I don't get to enjoy full fellowship with y'all, and vice versa. 
And this is it, I mean you no disrespect, and I'm sure that those of you who are Reformed Baptists the, 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 or Presbyterians or whatever, the, the feeling is mutual. And you would say, this, I don't mean you any disrespect, Chris, and I, it's like completely understand, okay? No problemo. So when we're talking about fellowship, we're talking about more than just showing up and being in the same building with somebody who teaches something false, okay? In other words— you know, when you think back to the Mosaic laws uh, that talked about being in the presence of dead things and that how that made somebody ceremonially unclean, just being in the mere presence of somebody who is a heretic or having a conversation with a heretic, does not a heretic make you or does it mean that you've broken the, the biblical commands regarding fellowship? Because it takes more than just being in the room with a heretic to have their uncleanness, so to speak, wear off on you. Heresy is not an airborne disease in the sense that it's passed via casual contact. It actually involves teaching and listening and hearing and being in fellowship with that person and agreeing with them in their doctrines and their beliefs. You understand what I'm saying here? So number four, avoid fellowship. Once we have discerned false doctrine or practice, what then? God, God's command at this point is very clear. The following expressions are used in the New Testament to describe separation. This is talking about separation on the fellowship level. Avoid, Romans 6, 17. Shun, 2, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 16. Turn away from, 2 Timothy 3, 5. Purge oneself from, 2 Timothy 2.21. Come out from among, 2 Corinthians 6.17, Revelation 18.4. Have no fellowship or communion with, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Receive them not into your house, neither bid them Godspeed, 2 John uh, verse 10. By the way, oftentimes 2 John... Uh, is misquoted, okay? Let me point this out to you, okay? Have you ever had the Jehovah's Witnesses or the uh, Mormons come knocking on your door, you know, uh, hello, we're with the uh, local kingdom hall, and we'd like to share with you the uh, the, the message of Jehovah and how you can survive the, uh, the uh, Armageddon so that you can be part of the chosen people to live here on paradise earth. You ever, you ever had the Jehovah's Witnesses show up to your door? Now, how many of you have actually invited them into your house say, you know, listen, stop standing there. Come on in and sit down. Let's talk, Okay. Now, I remember over and over and over again when I was first introduced to, you know, Christian apologetics, I would listen to the Bible Answer Man, and this was a passage that Dr. Walter Martin frequently had to deal with because he strongly recommended that people take the time to talk to the cultists who showed up at their doorstep and to use that as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Right. And so he would constantly run into people saying, nope. Can't let those people in your house. As soon as they show up at your door, you kick them out. You hose them down. You go grab your garden hose and start spraying them and, and make sure they know never to come back because you don't want to run afoul of Second John chapter 10, uh, verse 10. Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> the idea here was um, in Second John 10 is that where, where did, you know, in the first century, where, where did churches meet? Oftentimes they met in house churches. And 
so and then you know what would happen is is if the if evangelists were traveling through or whatever they would use people's homes as a base of operations for preaching the gospel so this is not a command that basically says you can't be in the sa- under the same roof as somebody who doesn't teach the truth this is a command about keeping them out of your church and not letting giving them a base of operations to spread their heresy into your church that's what second john's all about anyway um he continues to say it receive uh, them not into your house neither bid them godspeed that's second john verse 10 one does not need a phd to understand the meaning of these exhortations god is telling his people to stay away from those who teach or practice false things okay number 5 avoid yoking together in ministry organizations etc and for this he cites second corinthians Chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, which read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Um, What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You none. Uh, For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, this command does not allow a Christian to be in the same denomination, Christian organization, fellowship, or church with those who are committed to unbelief. However, I see no issue with someone like John MacArthur going to Liberty University and preaching the truth of the gospel to the students there, for example. If we cut ourselves off completely from the world, then how can we share the gospel with them? Hear, hear. Now, this is the area where I think we Christians have got to be careful, okay? And the reason I say that is, is because we live in a day and age where the new media is the, is the reigning thing, okay? We live in a day where somebody can post a blog, you know, blog post and it goes around the world in a second, all right? Um, and here's the deal. The question that needs to be asked is if somebody, let's say we've got uh, let's say we've got Dr. Albert Muller, whom I, I, I think if uh, you think Dr. Albert Muller is a heretic, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't have any kind things to say about you. I disagree with Dr. Muller vehemently regarding the sacraments and uh, and you know certain things that are peculiar to the Baptist teaching, but he ain't no heretic, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's the Baptist I fear the most. Let's just put it that way. He who must but not be named in the Baptist circles. I mean, he's yikes. I mean, seriously, I I would I I'm afraid that if I were to be in a room with him, I might wet myself out of just pure respect for the fact that he is such a theological mensch. And I probably have said far more than I need to. But the point of the matter is this: is that we're, for the sake of this discussion here. We've got. Let's say that Dr. Albert Muller is begged, please, 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 please come speak at 
uh, at our conference. And let, let, let's just pick up some silly conference name. Uh, the name of our conference is Next Church Conference, okay? And speaking at the Next Church Conference is going to be a lot, you know, as, as not just Dr. Albert Muller, but also Rick Warren. And for whatever reason, Dr. Albert Muller says, yep, I'm going to take this one and I'm going to go and I'm going to present for an hour a keynote lecture at the next church, at the next church conference. And two hours after Dr. Muller speaks, Rick Warren is going to speak. Okay. Now, the question then comes up, does that fall under the category of being yoked together in ministry with Rick Warren? I don't think so. I really, really, true, truly do not think so. I do not think that conference equals ministry. I don't think that conference equals fellowship. And this is something we've got to be really careful of here, is his showing up does not equate into a tacit approval of Rick Warren's Bible twisting and false doctrine. You see, that's the thing, is is that many people say that just showing up somewhere is a tacit approval of somebody else's doctrine, to which I would say, oh, no, it ain't. Uh Uh-uh. No. And, you know, again, the proof is always in the pudding. I think it takes far more than just showing up at the same conference And conferences are problematic at best, by the way, but I'm a firm believer that it takes far more than just showing up at the same conference and speaking at the same conference as somebody else who's dubious in their doctrine to, uh, to, that doesn't equal, it does not equal an automatically tacit approval of what's going on there. And so you would have to listen to what Dr. Mueller said and see, in, in order for Dr. Mueller to actually endorse Rick Warren, he'd actually have to say those words. And unfortunately, we do have a leader who's done that, and it's John Piper. <sighs> I have to talk more about that on another edition of Fighting for the Faith. That is just one of those, it, that is a total burr in my saddle. I just, uh Because here's the deal. There's no evidence that uh, before or since uh, John Piper's, you know, endorsement of Rick Warren that Piper has really truly drifted, you know, theologically. I think a case could be made that he seems like he's drifting, but nothing, nothing I could put my finger on yet. Yeah, so I, I, I'm always of the proof is in the pudding kind of thing, and so, and this kind of goes to you know this this idea is is that a lot of people think that just because somebody automatically shows up somewhere else where a heretic is and that and that they're at the same conference that that equals a tacit approval of the person's heresies. How come none of you guys ever actually think that that because the heretic showed up where the orthodox guy is speaking that that means that the heretic is tacitly approving of the orthodoxy being preached by the orthodox guy? Yeah, you see, yeah, when you run it that way, you realize, oh yeah, it doesn't work that way, right? <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Number six, avoid their doctrine. Yes, avoid their doctrine. And he cites for this 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 18, which read, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need of to be ashamed, rightly handling or cutting the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Okay, so let's continue with uh, his analysis now here regarding the correct doctrine of separation. In 2 Timothy 2.14, we just read 2 Timothy 2.14. In this passage, Christians are warned to, uh, warned to avoid the words of false teachers. Let us not be deceived. False teachings have been very successful. Christendom is permeated with false doctrine. Yep. Wherein comes this success? The Bible reveals to us that there is a supernatural power behind false teaching, and that power is Satan. Right. Who's responsible for the apostasy? You could pu- you could put it into two, basically in the lapse of two things. Number one, man's sinful nature, and the deceiving work of Satan. Anyway, um, he cites for this Second uh, uh, Corinthians eleven thirteen through fifteen and First uh, Timothy four one, which I think behooves me to actually cite and to read these things. Second Timothy chapter. 11 verse 13 reads, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, and their end will correspond to their deeds. Now the Spirit expressly says, this is 1 Timothy 4, 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So is there a conspiracy against the church? You bet your bippy there is, and it's a satanic one. Anyway, it's not It's not about the Fabian socialists. It's about Satan. <laughs> anyway, it is for this reason that Christians are warned not to become involved in any way with false doctrine. Rather, we are to shun it. For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their world will eat as doth a canker. Oh, nicely done, okay? Anyway, this means the Christian is not to attend a church in which false doctrine is being proclaimed. We are not to attend Bible studies or meetings or prayer groups in which false doctrine is involved. When those involved with false doctrine ask permission to sit with us, explain that their beliefs, uh, explain, tell, uh, to sit with us to explain their beliefs more clearly, we must wisely refuse. Uh, the only exception is an occasion in which we ourselves teach the one who is in bondage to the false uh, in in bondage to the false belief, and this is only when that one is willing to listen with an open heart and not argue and resist the truth. See Second Timothy two twenty three through twenty six. Apart from our own ministry to try to help the deceive, we must avoid all false instruction. Number seven: rebuke them, rebuke them openly, publicly, and plainly. Matthew 23, 13 through 33, Acts 13, 8 through 10, God's word commands us to rebuke false teachers openly, publicly, and plainly. And the faithful servant of God will do just that. Christians who dislike biblical separation often protest that we cannot help the erring person if we separate. This is not true. One reason for separating is to help those who err see the seriousness of their error to make a clear distinction between true and false doctrine. Amen. Hear, hear. Many excuse their refusal to obey biblical separation by saying that they are ministering to the false and the disobedient. This is wrong. The Bible warns that a little leaven, evil leavens the whole body. The ecumenicist is confused. He apparently thinks a little good, a little good leavens the whole body. 
<laughs> it's, it doesn't work that way. And number eight, try to convince them of the truth. Second Timothy 2, 24 through 26. We are to try to help those who are involved in false doctrine, but we are not to do this from a but we are to do this, sorry, we are to do this from a separated position. It is our separation which shows them that we we do indeed believe false doctrine to be evil. It impresses them that we take the word of God seriously, and though we must refuse to have close fellowship with those involved in false doctrine, and though we must not allow them to be members of our churches and organizations, we are to try to teach them the truth if they will listen. Notice in 2 Timothy 2.26 that the false teacher's root problem is revealed. They are in the snare of the devil. False doctrine is not a problem of ignorance. It's a spiritual problem. Only a great miracle can rescue a person out of the grasp of false doctrine once he has fallen prey to it. Number nine, maintain a spiritual demeanor. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Last But not least, we see that this ministry of discernment, judgment, contention for truth, and separation from error are to be carried out in a spiritual manner. I pray that you will notice that these calls to separate had nothing to do with traditions or personalities or personal disagreements. No, this has to do with biblical doctrine alone. I would like to add a number 10 to this. Do not become discouraged if one does, if one if the one if the ones being rebuked never repent and if all their followers consider you to be the bad guy and attack you as divisive this is what's going to become more and more prevalent as these times grow ever more darker sola deo gloria mike thank you for this contribution great blog post good stuff well argued biblically and here now, now the, here's the idea here what mike laid out in this article this blog post is first and foremost defining what is unity, second, defining what the Bible commands regarding um, separation and the idea and how that practically plays out. And now here's the idea. What he did is he gave an apologetic, a biblical teaching regarding what is known as primary separation. Primary separation. That's what all of this is. Now, what is all the hubbub and dust-up regarding so-called secondary separation? Secondary separation is the belief that you have to separate from somebody who doesn't abide by primary separation. That's what secondary separation is. So here's the idea, is, is that if, you know, if a pastor, you know, for whatever you know, reason, is, is deemed to not be properly separated from somebody who is a false teacher— then the idea then is that you have to separate yourself from the pastor, even if the pastor's orthodox. That's the idea behind secondary separation. And this is kind of the gist of what's going on right now all over the Internet. And, and this is where the, 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 the core of the debate is really all about, secondary separation. And you know, here's the idea is, is that uh, do, if, uh, if Albert Mueller— provides one of the plenary speeches at Saddleback Church, are we then obligated to separate from him? That's the question. The way this is being used nowadays, the way this issue is this issue is being used, is that the person who is calling for the secondary separation many times on a blog hasn't actually proven hasn't actually proven at all firstly 
that the person that you know we're supposed to separate from has actually broken primary separation you know it, you know the, the definition of primary separation and as a result of it they just assume that that's the case and then they call for secondary separation as if that i you know and i don't even know if that can really technically be uh defended and the idea here is is that the way it's being used out there right now is that if you are just merely in the presence of somebody who they've already that somebody is determined to be a heretic then then um you have to be separated from on the grounds of primary separation or secondary separation but the problem is is that the question then has to be asked is just being in the presence of or taking a photograph with somebody who is a heretic rises to the level of of breaking the biblical commands regarding primary separation answer i don't think so and the reality of the matter is is that I don't have a problem with guys who go to conferences and proclaim the gospel even when other dubious uh, speakers are on the docket. That does not actually equal a, a tacit approval of their false doctrine, and I'm always listening for the content of what is spoken anyway. At what you know, Primary separation has to do primarily with false unity, being united with somebody who you should not be united with, and it's talking about fellowship, it's talking about church, it's talking about being yoked together in real ministry. You get what I'm saying here? So we've got a problem, okay? We've got a problem. We got, In fact, there's lots and lots and lots of problems going on right now. And number one is is that there's a lot of people calling for separating from people who haven't actually broken the the biblical doctrine of separation, you know, primary separation. And the people who are calling for it are calling out of the grounds of secondary separation, and I don't even think biblically they can make a case for it. But secondly, secondly, they haven't even correctly proven that the person that they're calling for us being separated from has actually broken the primary doctrine of separation as laid out in the Bible. And now as a result of that, we've got a whole new category of heretic that doesn't even exist in the Bible. And that new category of heretic is the bridger. The bridger apparently is somebody who actually holds to orthodox views, but somehow has magically lent their credibility to somebody who's a heretic and and is supposedly magically handing over all of their people to the false, to the wolf. See, they're a bridger, and they may not even be aware that they're a bridger. Yeah, yeah. With all of this is just getting really convoluted and silly. The solution is to not. We don't need to go and create new categories of separation. And the reality of this is this: is that if we're going to really insist on secondary separation, it's just a matter of time. The doctrine of secondary, if, if, and this, if, here's the deal. If you're going to use the doctrine of secondary separation as the litmus test for determining whether or not somebody is orthodox, then it's just a matter of time before everybody is a heretic and everybody has to shun everybody else. You, you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, you, 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 hopefully I'm making sense. Yeah, and I think this is a huge, huge problem. And this then leads to the other issue. We as Christians actually have the freedom to disagree with conspiracy theorists regarding their currently popular pet uh, uh, conspiracy theories. 
That includes Glenn Beck and his in his conspiracy theory regarding the uh, Fabian socialists. It, re, it it also it also we we have the freedom in Christ to reject uh, the conspiracy theories regarding the new world order, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, all of that, all, all the things that are going on right now that the neocons talk about. You actually have a right. To say I don't agree with that, and they don't have a right to ch- to question as to whether or not you're truly a Christian because you disagree with their particular conspiracy theory. And believe me when I tell you, spend some time taking you know just sampling all the different blogs out there that are talking about the apostasy, and there's a there's a there's a very prevalent stream in some of them that embrace these conspiracy theories and are trying to wed the current apostasy and and make you know basic in such a way that the apostasy is a result of the of the fabian socialists or the neocons or the new world order or whatever now it might be i'm not saying it isn't but the point i'm trying to make is is that we got to be really careful when we do these things and simpler is actually better i think if we Go back and formally study what God's Word teaches regarding what is unity and what is separation. I think we could start making some pretty informed decisions, and as a result of it, we don't end up casting suspicion on a whole group of pastors who are patently orthodox, who are clearly proclaiming and defending the biblical gospel, but who apparently have run afoul of somebody's misguided idea of what secondary separation is, and as a result of it, they fall into the suspicious category, or worse, they're now being, they're being branded as bridgers when the Bible doesn't even mention such a th- an animal. You get what I'm saying? Anyway, and I know for a fact that after this podcast gets posted, that people are going to point, point to this podcast as proof that I've come under the influence of the New World Order and that I'm part of the conspiracy. And to you, I would basically say, <laughs> silly person, what are you talking about? All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian 
Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon today. I need one. (laughs) Really, really badly. Let's swim across the pond and sit under the teaching of Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. See if he can point us to Christ and him crucified for our sins. How much you want to bet he does? Let's cue up the sermon review music. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon review sermon comes to us via um uh, what's this bethel evangelical free church hanley stoke-on-trent in the uk pastor gervais nicholas edward charmley presiding the uh biblical text that he will be preaching on is the gospel of john chapter 10 Verses 1 through 21. That means you're going to hear the text about the abundant life. Is Pastor Charmley in danger of telling us what our itching ears want to hear? He's going to preach the text that says that Jesus came to have life so that we can have life and have it abundantly. Is Pastor Charmley going to tell you how God wants you to have a Bentley, a Mercedes-Benz, that he wants your children to be well-behaved, that he promises that everybody will have bright, shiny teeth, a large home in the countryside, a purpose-driven life, a career, and a smoking hot wife, Well, I mean, or a husband, depending. Is that what he's going to tell us? Because he's preaching on this text, that Jesus came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Certainly, he's going to steer into some form of the word faith heresy, right? Yeah, probably not. (laughs) We are, of course, talking about a man who takes his biblical study seriously and actually, you know, preaches the texts and then points, points us to Christ and him crucified for our sins in the text. 
So the chances of Pastor Charmley actually steering into the word faith heresy, yeah, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> no, no, it's no, no. So uh, let me cue this up, and uh, while this is praying, I'm gonna uh, playing. I'm gonna go uh, see if I can uh, do a little uh, dancing in this, uh, you know, sweating in the spirit. You know, continue my weight loss. Here's Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John and chapter 10. John's Gospel, chapter 10. And we begin with the aftermath of Jesus' healing of the man born blind. John chapter 10. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leaves them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration. They did not understand the things that he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings, and many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now it was the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than them all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because he said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, but if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John said, spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. And we trust God's blessing to rest on the reading of his holy and precious word. Our text this morning is found in chapter that we read, John chapter 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In fact, this chapter divides into two. In verse 22 we read it was the feast of dedication. And then we have a change from this discourse, the first half, to the second half. So we shall consider this morning the first half of John chapter 10. This title of Jesus the Good Shepherd is one that is beloved in Christian history. We love to sing the hymn, The Lord's My Shepherd, Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. And this hymn that we just sang applying that name to Jesus, Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep. Some of the earliest pieces of Christian art that we have in the catacombs in Rome are pictures of the good shepherd. Jesus as the good shepherd, whatever you think of such art. Some of the earliest Christian art is pictures of Christ as the good shepherd. And it's a title that's full of meaning. It looks back to the Old Testament. We're right to sing the Lord's my shepherd with reference to Jesus. Because Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And it refers back to the Old Testament. To the fact that Jehovah, Yahweh, was the God. The God of the Old Testament is the shepherd of Israel. So... Psalm 80 and verse 1, 
The psalmist says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim shine forth. The shepherd of Israel is God. God is the shepherd, and yet Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, whose, whose the sheep are. The sheep belong to Jesus. And he's speaking to the Pharisees here. The context begins at the end of chapter 9, when some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words. They said to him, are we blind also? And all this is a response to the Pharisees saying, are we blind also? And so we have the sheepfold, first of all. Then we have the shepherd, and thirdly we have the sacrifice. The sheepfold, the shepherd, and the sacrifice. Jesus used this illustration of the sheepfold, which would be quite familiar to the people he was speaking to. Now, of course, we do not live very far from sheep farming country. Just yesterday, I went up to Tideswell in the Peak District, and of course, up around there, it's all sheep farming country. And you see the sheepfolds and the fields on the hills. And in the ancient Near East, the first century in Judea, every village would have a large sheepfold with a high wall that would be topped off with fawners, equivalent to our modern barbed wire, and the idea was to keep people from going over the fold and stealing the sheep. And so Jesus says, He does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way. The same is a thief and a robber. And he is speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees. These people who say, we are the leaders of the people, we have the truth, we see. He says, you have not come into the sheepfold of Israel the right way. And therefore you are thieves and robbers who are leading the people of Israel astray. It's a shocking thing to say to the religious leaders of the people. And yet it is true. First of all, you will look in vain in the Old Testament for Pharisees. There is nothing in the law of God setting apart the position the Pharisees had for themselves. They were self-appointed religious leaders. Now they were self-appointed because the priests had declined, had become very worldly, had be in fact become involved in, in politics before the Herods, before the Romans, Israel was ruled by a succession of priest kings who were much more political than they were priests. And so the Pharisees took it upon themselves to preserve the word of God, yet they had not entered in by the door. God had not appointed them nor had the priests come in the right way. The line of Aaron through Zadok, which was the, the lawful line of the priests, 
had been wiped out. And the priests came from another line. But more than that, the priests were not appointed as they should have been. God had said, the eldest son of the high priest is the next high priest until his death. But the Romans appointed the high priest and removed him again. And that's why you will find in the Gospels, Annas and Caiaphas living at the same time. Annas was deposed, Caiaphas put in his place. The Romans, pagan conquerors, appointed the priest, not God, by his law that he had, he had set. God had said who should be priest, it was ignored. And instead, the Romans appointed the priests. But more than that, they did not come in by the door who is Christ. The door is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door. They did not point people to Jesus. They did not proclaim the Messiah. Instead, they proclaimed their own message. And they opposed Jesus. They stood opposed to the one whom they should have been preaching. Their message was not Jesus. And anybody whose message is not Jesus and his blood has come in the wrong way. There are ministers of the gospel so called who never speak of the blood of Christ. And they have come in the wrong way. They have not come in by the door. So we, have, we can apply that today that all who claim to be God's ministers but do not proclaim Jesus and him crucified, do not proclaim the word of God, are not God's. But then we come to Jesus who is the door, and who calls the sheep by name, he knows them you see. The shepherd, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leaves them out. Now of course in this country, our sheep farming, the, the shepherd drives the sheep, he goes behind them and has his sheep dogs to keep them in line. But in the, in the east, the shepherd walks in front. And every sheep has a name. And the sheep learn to recognize the shepherd's voice and they do follow him. It's an amazing thing to see an eastern shepherd walking in front with his staff, with all the sheep behind him in a line. An amazing thing to see. I, I saw one once in southern Spain where they keep up some of the practices that are seen in the Middle East. An area that was conquered by the Moors. And it's an amazing thing to see this shepherd walking at the head of the flock and they all follow him. They're not wandering this way and that, they're all walking after the shepherd. They know the shepherd. They know he is the man who leads them to the pasture. They know him. They hear his voice and they follow him. Christians hear Jesus' voice. 
God's chosen people hear his voice. How do we recognize? The question has been asked. How do you recognize the elect of God, those God has chosen for salvation, is by this. They hear his voice. Now it takes time. The little lamb does not immediately recognize the shepherd's voice. But he learns, he is taught to hear the shepherd's voice. And we are not taught by our own experience, but by the Holy Spirit. So Dr. Doddridge can say in his hymn, He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. We hear Jesus' voice. And not just the once, you see. Over and over and over. Faith is not a, a one-off activity. There are some people who say, I made a decision for Jesus. There was a day when I said, yes, and I came forward to the meeting, and there's nothing else. Nothing beyond that moment. Well, that is temporary faith. True faith is ongoing and day by day. It is a present reality. Daily listening, hearing the shepherd's voice as he speaks in the scriptures. And longing to hear the shepherd's voice. We are not satisfied once to have heard the voice of Jesus. But time and again we come and say with William, William, speak I pray thee, gentle Jesus, oh, how passing sweet thy word. Breathing o'er my troubled spirit, peace which never earth affords. And so we come to the shepherd. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. And he says there are false shepherds, you see, the thief. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. The sheep did not hear them. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That, he says, is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. The men whom the people were looking to as religious leaders were thieves who came to steal and to kill and to destroy. And all who do not proclaim Jesus, however nice they may be, are thieves who come to steal and to kill and to destroy. To steal away from God's people the gospel of Jesus crucified for us. To kill souls by that very act of theft. And finally to destroy the church of the living God by taking away the foundation. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they took away Jesus. In fact, these people eventually, they killed him. And they thought that by killing him, they were destroying him. They sought to kill the true shepherd and to steal the sheep. the good shepherd the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep I am come 
that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now this is a verse that's often abused and misunderstood. People take it out of context and say, well look, Jesus says, I am come, they may have life, they may have it more abundantly, and therefore the Christians should expect to have health, wealth and prosperity. Nonsense, that's not what the Bible is talking about. Life, life is defined by fellowship with God. If you have no fellowship with God, you have no life. If you have not God, you have not life. You have existence without God, but you cannot have life without God. And you see, this is a problem. That men do not have life. That Jesus Christ came into a world of dead sinners. The great Welsh preacher Christmas Evans pictures the world's graveyard. You go into a large grave or a great cemetery, like one of the cemeteries in our city, and you see row upon row upon row upon row of graves. And the gravestones stretching away into the distance. And all is quiet, because there is no life. There is only decay and death. And God looks down upon the world of sinners and sees decay and death and nothing more. And the Lord Jesus comes. And he comes down to earth from heaven. And he comes to the grave mouth. He comes to the grave and he says, dig. And the angels dig down. Raise up the coffin, and the coffin is opened, and there is the dead body. And all that man can say can do nothing to the dead. They do not fear, do not see. The Lord Jesus Christ stretches forth his hand and says, Arise! And the dead arise. That's what it means that Jesus came, that we may have life. He came to dead sinners and said, Arise! He came to those who could not see and laid his hands upon the eyes. And there was sight. To those who could not hear and touch the ears, and there was hearing. To those who could not speak and touch the mouth, and there were words of praise and glory to God. That's abundant life. Living for God and his glory. Knowing the glory of God. Oh, it is wonderful to be able to go out into the world and to say indeed that something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. To look at the hills and the mountains and say, my Father made all this. To look at the stars and say, the stars show forth, the heavens show forth the glory of God. To sing the praise of Jesus, to hear his words speaking. That's life. Not the possession of worldly things that can pass away in an instant. Not the possession of anything in this world, but the possession of Christ, that life. That's the life Jesus came to give. Life in him. Life with him forevermore. Not a life that can be snuffed out in a moment. We've heard, we've seen New Zealand. 
and those people who were going about their business on that day who have died lives lost in a moment a falling building that's life in this world this world is passing away in everything it desires but Christ abides forever and those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ share in his life and live in him forevermore that's life, that's abundant life a life that never ends a life with God a life hidden with God in Christ that is abundant life and that abundant life is found in those who suffer long in those whose lives are filled with pain and trials that abundant life is found in Job on the dunghill the man who lost everything his family, his business, his health lost everything and yet he says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord that's abundant life life in God the shepherd came to give life in himself and how does he give that life the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he gives his life for the sheep and now Jesus brings up another example of a shepherd who is not the good shepherd, the hireling the hireling is not a thief or a robber he's just one who is not overly concerned for the sheep they're not his sheep the hireling, we are told first of all, loves his own life more than the sheep and so along comes the wolf savage wolf and rather than risk his life trying to fight off the wolf the hireling runs away and says let the wolf let the wolf take what he can I knew of a, a farmer who had a, an overseer not over sheep in this case but pigs and this man saw a fox come into the, into the pen where the pigs were and it was, it was the time of the little piglets and the overseer reported to the owner of the pigs I saw this, this fox kill half a dozen piglets to which the overseer's reply was why didn't you go and stop him the answer of course is they weren't his pigs the hireling says it's not my sheep not my problem my life is more important than the sheep I'm not going to fight a fierce wolf the hireling isn't a bad person this is an enemy he's just more concerned with himself than with the sheep and he loves his own life and therefore he doesn't protect the sheep and he lets them die the religious leaders of Jesus' day cared more for their own position than they did for God's people 
They didn't say, well if this man is the Christ, he is our saviour, and therefore we must look into it. They said, if he is the Christ, we're out of a job. And therefore, they cared more for themselves, and let God's people perish for lack of knowledge. But the good shepherd loves the sheep. The good shepherd loves the sheep. And we see this because he lays down his life for the sheep. He cares so much for the sheep that he's willing to die in their place. Now King David, when he was a shepherd, a young shepherd in the hills of Palestine, he says he fought a bear and a lion to protect the sheep. He risked his life for the sheep, but Jesus gives his life for the sheep. He dies to protect the sheep, to save the sheep, not from an enemy from outside so much as from their own sins. We are saved from our sins by Jesus, saved from death, destruction and hell. And it is seen, the love of God is seen in death. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we can only understand the death of Christ as we understand it is necessary the shepherd throwing himself off a precipice for no reason does not show love for the sheep. It shows insanity. The shepherd standing between the sheep and the attacking animal and battling that animal unto death. That shows love. Unless there was a reason, a need for Christ to die, his death cannot possibly show us love. Unless it was absolutely necessary for God to take human flesh and die, then the death of Christ is meaningless. It cannot show us love. Unless it is a sacrifice for our sins. And then, you see, engraved upon the cross, we see in shining letters, God is love, he bears our sins upon the tree. He brings us mercy from above. And you see, if we understand the cross as Jesus bearing our sins, taking our punishment in our place, then we cry out in love, in wonder, greater love has no man than this, that while we were still sinners, Christ should die for us. For men lay down their lives for their friends, but Jesus for his enemies. And he on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If we know that, then we marvel in the love of God in Christ Jesus. He gave his life, he shed his blood for our salvation. He died in our place. If the shepherd did not die, the sheep would die. What a wonderful thing it is. Jesus found me, 
when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. He comes as a saviour by the blood. And we see the death of Christ, the great declaration of God's love. We have these, these emblems here on the table that speak to us of his broken body, the shepherd who died for the sheep. The shed blood. We have this graphic reminder of the shepherd's death. If he had not died, his body would not be broken. If he had not died, his blood would not be poured out. But he has died. And so his body is broken. And so his blood is poured out. And so his body and his blood are for us and for our salvation. And he says... To each of us, take and eat by faith. This is my body which is given for you. And he said, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. There would be no covenant without the blood. The blood freely shed for you and for me. Oh, I knew an old minister... Old minister from Yorkshire, old Methodist, a real Methodist. He told this story, he said, one day I was preaching at a Methodist chapel. And in the vestry, the steward said to me, let's not have a bloodbath in the pulpit this Sunday. And his old Yorkshire minister said, well, I wasn't planning to preach about the blood that morning. But when he said that, I had to. We have to have the blood. We have to speak of Christ crucified for us. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The only way we can enter into this abundant life of Christ is through the blood. Through the wounds that were visited on the Saviour. How can we says heart, how can we remain unmoved when we know it was all for us? When we think of what Christ did for us, how can we not be moved? When we hear of the shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, and are told, and you are one of those sheep, how can we not be unmoved? How can we not cry out, he loved me and gave himself for me, and I to him myself must give, not out of law, but love. For he has given himself for us, and has given us life by his death. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who calls his people by name, he knows your name. And your name is engraven upon the palms of his hands, if you are his. The names of his people are written upon his heart. He calls his people by name, he knows his sheep. And he alone is able to give abundant life. Not what this world calls abundant life, which is merely an abundance of stuff. A gaudy death is what the world calls abundant life. 
But Jesus gives true life, fellowship with God, eternal life by his death, by his blood. He laid down his life for the sheep. And therefore there was a division again amongst the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon, is mad, why do you listen to him? There were those who heard Jesus speaking of the good shepherd. And they said, he's crazy. And we won't listen to a word he says. Oh, there are very many who when they hear the gospel they say, Jesus is crazy, I won't listen to a word he says. Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? And there are others who say, look at him. Look at this man. No more sane man ever lived. No more good or gracious man ever lived. How therefore can we reject his word? Reject his word and you reject him. Reject him and you reject his word. Reject him and you say he has a demon and he's mad. Don't patronize the Lord Jesus by saying, well, he's a good man, but... If he's a good man, and he's a good shepherd, and he's a good shepherd, then he's a shepherd of Israel. Then he is God over all, forever blessed. But if he is not... God, then he is not God. But he is God. He is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He saw the bad shepherds, the evil shepherds. He was given to be the good shepherd. To be the saviour of all who would believe on him. Can you really sing? We shall sing in a few moments our hymn, the hymn 736, The Lord's My Shepherd. But can you really sing that? Will you really say, yes, the Lord is my shepherd. I follow the Lord Jesus. I trust him. I trust in his redeeming blood. But he has died for me, given up his life for me. Can you say he is the shepherd? The shepherd who died for me. There is a division, where are you? Of his flock or not of his flock? That is the division. Between those who hear his voice and trust him and those who do not and who are lost forever. Oh, may, may we all, by grace, be enabled truly to say, The Lord is my shepherd. And my shepherd is the shepherd who died for me. May Christ have mercy on us for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. I couldn't bring myself to interrupt him. More and more, when I'm hearing these good sermons that are constantly and beautifully pointing me to Jesus Christ, his shed blood and his wounds for my sins and yours. I mean, in passing, Pastor Charmley talked about how Jesus knows your name 
and that your name is written on the palm of his hands. I can't help but think of the wounds of Christ and the nails that they pierced him through with. Yeah, your name is written in the palms of our Lord, written in blood. I can't hear that story enough. And that's the only reason why I do what I do, is because discernment ultimately comes back to is the person preaching Jesus? Or is he like a hireling who doesn't care anything for the sheep? Cares only for himself, like the Pharisees, the self-appointed leaders and teachers who cared more for their own glory and the glory of men than the glory of God. Lord, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Lord, grant that your church would have pastor charmleys to boldly proclaim your word and to placard Christ and him crucified for our sins and keep pointing us back again to the shed blood of our great God and Savior who bled and died for us and rose again on the third day for our justification. Amen. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Are you supporting us already? Do you support us financially? If not, why not? <laughs> if you don't, please do. Visit our website. You know the drill. Got two friendly yellow buttons there. You know what that's all about. Of course, if you'd like to uh, make a check payable, you can do so by making a check payable to Fighting for the Fighting for the Faith send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers Indiana zip code 46038 What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy Went by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. Amen. Amen.